This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. So in the basically the post-war period in the USA, post-World War II, this kind of dark, pessimistic style of cinema began to emerge, which it took a while to, to really be identified. But it was the French, of course. It was the French who called it film noir, kind of dark film, dark cinema. Uh, it's a not a genre as such because film noir can be melodrama, it can be thriller, it can be crime drama, uh, it can be kind of... Uh, influenced by Italian neorealism. It's kind of more a a tone or a mood uh, or a a series of motifs than a genre. But one of the latest films to embrace noir is the very low-budget Australian film Trench, which is written, directed, edited by and photographed slash cinematographed by my next guest, Paul Anthony Nelson. Paul, hello. Welcome to Triple R. Hey, lovely to be here, Rich. Thanks for having me. Uh, Very great pleasure. So, why did you decide to make this kind of very low budget? As I said, uh, it's what seventy five grand or something. You uh, lower, lower um, forty five. So it's a mic. We call it micro budget, and it's a uh, twenty eight thousand dollars. Whoa. Okay, that's that is very low budget, yeah, but it's is end to end. also indicative of the fact that filmmaking technology has been democratized by the availability of high quality home video equipment, editing online and so forth. Absolutely. Yeah. So we we were able to rent a digital camera and sort of we had this apparatus that we connected to it called a Shogun that sort of upscales everything to 4K, um, which is, I guess, why they, yeah, the blacks look so black and, and it looks so crisp and it looks so um, lovely. Uh, and, yeah, that was all rentable fairly cheaply and uh, I edited it at home once I got around to getting an editing system at home. And, yeah, it's it's so surprising what you can do uh, yourself or with a lot of very talented friends who are, are generous with their time and efforts. So... The plot of the film, to summarise, is about a struggling comedian masquerading as a private eye who essentially is uh, playing detective to help a writer find her stalker. So that's the the summation of the film. But let's backtrack. Hmm. Why make a contemporary film noir in Melbourne? Well, the germ started with two things. One, what's a... What's because I I'm very connected to genre when it when it comes to film. I'm a massive film buff, um, and I wanted to make something that was visually interesting in an identifiable genre and something we could do on a twenty eight thousand dollar budget. The other thing was I've always imagined Melbourne in black and white. Melbourne just seems like a black and white. I mean, you know, and noir in Melbourne, like we all wear black anyway. We're halfway there. <laughs> Fair point, fair point. And certainly, look, uh, having looked at some of the film at home this morning, the, those opening titles are so very noir. You've got the jazz on the soundtrack by Adam Rudiger. You've got uh, kind of buildings at night, streetscape, already those some of those identifiable signatures. We then cut to our PI, kind of fedora coat leaning against a street lamp, kind of lit from above at night. So those kind of signifiers are already there. Is the risk in making a film like this that you end up with a pastiche of noir rather than a proper homage? Well, the thing is, immediately after that uh, beautiful shot, a classic shot of her under the lamppost and the fedora, we puncture it immediately um, because she sort of barrels up to the writer's house and tries to, you know, talk her way in and she's not a great detective. And the sort of... It's this whole thing is because as a comedian, she... You know, she's broke, she's not doing very well, she's kind of um, booed off stage. Um, she's struggling for material. She's struggling to kind of find her voice at, uh, or regain what voice she had. And she thinks, uh, well, you know, I'm, I'm a comic, I'm observational. I could be a detective. Detectives are observational. And, and makes this sort of... And it's like it, the whole film is kind of a journey to her finding out who she really is and what she's really good at. Uh, her being uh, the character Sam Slade, which is a, a great name for a, a, a PI in a film noir. Yeah, yeah I, it just... Um, it's funny, somebody... like It, it popped in because it's, you know, obviously a play on Sam Spade. Um, and as uh, the other character that, that Perry plays, uh, Becky Holt, says to her, um, no, sorry, uh, Philip Amalo's already on the case. Um, but it's... Um, it, it was only pointed out to me years later that... Oh, well, months later that... Um, 
Sam Slade is a character from a 2000 AD comic called uh, Robo Hunter that I used to read as a kid. So obviously there's some sort of osmosis going on there as well. But yeah, it's... It's it's fun to subvert those noir stereotypes, um, particularly in writing the film. Uh, we had this sort of situation where, when we were designing the characters, we we're thinking, well, in this modern Melbourne world, who would? Because the entire film is a clash between past and present, and within this Melbourne world, who would be the noir archetypes? You know, who would be the con man? Okay, to probably be a men's rights activist. Uh, you know. Uh, in it for cash, uh, who would be the thug, the boxer, that'd be a, you know, a, a shock um, sort of, you know, misogynistic stand-up comedian, who would be the mastermind, it'd probably be a politician. So we kind of went through like that and, and sort of um, modernised those noir tropes and had a little fun with them. One of the other things you've modernised is that this is the the major characters, the major players, the uh, our protagonists are women. So instead of the, the cliché of the femme fatale and the, the hard-bitten, probably fairly misogynistic, I played a uh, the, the track that I played before, given that uh, kind of uh, Mike Hammer is very brutal and very misogynistic, yeah. there is a, a kind of an undercurrent of misogyny that runs through film noir, and you've subverted that by casting women in the lead roles. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I find that films automatically become two hundred percent more interesting when you cast females in traditionally male leads. Like it just makes it. It just you immediately get an interesting perspective that we haven't seen as much, and I think we need more of that. Um, the other thing is that we sort of went out with okay, well, you know, Sam is the is the private eye, and and Perry's character uh, Perry Cummings, who plays Becky Holt, and who also co-wrote and co-produced the film with me, and is a partner in Cinema Viscera with me, um, as well as my partner in life. Um, her character was meant to be the kind of the dame, and then we was as we were doing our research, we were less interested in the dame archetype and more interested in like screwball leads. So all of a sudden, that character started turning more into Rosalind Russell. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like, a, hey, nothing, you know, whiskey in my hand, nothing's too, you know, you know, water off a duck's back, nothing gets to me. Hey, kid, what are you? doing became that kind of character so yeah it was kind of we sort of almost went through that journey that you're describing ourselves kind of going yeah you know what the dame archetype is a little probo what's the response to the film been like so far because you had uh, your world premiere not so long ago just a, a few weeks ago over at what the sun theater yes in which is a perfect art deco uh surround for our film uh, in this beautiful in the Davis theater in in um, in the at the Sun and it was just perfect and it got such a lovely response from that world premiere um, everybody was really high on it and 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 stuck around to say lovely things after it was the, the kind of dream premiere you want to have and we got a our first review from the Cultural Capital podcast and that was an absolute rave it was almost like we'd paid them to write it but we hadn't <laughs> Uh, but no, it was it was it, the, the the response has been really warm so far, and I just I just think we've created a really enjoyable little movie. So let's talk through the process of making sure. uh, such a, a low budget film in Melbourne. How long did it take to write the screenplay? How long did it t- take to shoot and edit the film? And what advice do you have for would be independent filmmakers listening, thinking, oh, I can make a film for. 20 grand? Yeah, we we had an accelerated development program because we kind of did this thing called the Lean Filmmaking Program, which was to where you kind of come up with an idea and a basic skeleton for the story and then you talk to people who kind of interview people who you think would be in your target audience and then from there you get sort of responses back like what they want to see, what they don't want to see, that sort of thing. You incorporate that in and then we sort of fashion a script we shot a version of it with a bunch of actors, some of whom ended up in the final film, some of whom didn't. Um, but you, um, we shot that in two days, shot the entire script in two days. It was essentially like, shoot it like you're 12. Just take a, uh, take a DSLR in, go, okay, read your lines, all right, get in front of the camera, right, one or two takes, bang, bang, move on, all in one location, just to see how the story lines up. It was, it's, it's like a live action animatic essentially, like instead of sort of storyboarding or creating a thing, it's like, well, these are like live action storyboards and sort of have, you know, everyone in situ, everyone's saying the lines and you're kind of like, okay, this, the story works here. It doesn't work here. And so we kind of went back and redrafted it uh, based on that. We also showed that version terrifyingly to a small audience just to get their feedback on how the story was running. 
And then we incorporated all that into our next draft. And so we ended up doing four drafts in six months. Wow, okay. So it was just accelerated the whole thing and 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 Perry and I worked very kind of um, well as co-writers like she's a complete story brain and I'm sort of a dialogue guy and so I would write the script and then we yeah we'd sort of bounce things off each other um, and um, stress tested a bit and so yeah we wrote the script in six months we shot it in 16 days we took some time off and kind of uh, shot it including a 10-day stretch which I would not recommend uh, four days on, at least one day off would be the ideal. Uh, we were pretty shredded afterwards. And then it took um, it took about a year to put it, or 11 months to kind of edit it and, and put it all together. But that was, you know, partly just because of, you know, we all have day jobs and, and sort of, you know, sort of finding other people who also have day jobs to kind of, you know, sound edit and all that sort of thing. And then, um, and then a year just submitting to festivals and, and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, we built this for speed and yet it's been two and a half years since we came up with the idea and now sh- screening it at the Lido uh, next week. Well, two and a half years is actually not bad to, in terms of film development, particularly in this country where, uh, screenplays and film ideas can get stuck in development hell for for years at a time Uh, and as you said you've made it with a budget of 27 grand where did the money come from are we just talking about maxing out everyone's credit cards or well uh, thankfully not uh we had so we got the first half that we we sort of broke it into two so we we got our production budget of um the first 14 grand we got that from uh family and family business and and they sort of uh put in and then the back half uh for post we we uh, ran a crowdfunding campaign uh, through the Australian Cultural Fund, so it was a thing where we didn't have to create um, we didn't have to create rewards. The reward was a tax deduction, so it was just kind of people donate, they get a tax deduction. And the great thing there is we don't actually owe anybody anything. And so we paid our cast and crew through well, we will pay them uh, through uh, through profit share. We we basically run um, these the first couple of films that we're doing. We're running like a um, independent theatre company. So we're kind of getting the money through tax-deductible donations so we don't owe investors. And then from there, we um, we pay people from profits, which is essentially from dollar one. So um, we have a home video uh, DVD and VOD release uh, in August. Um, it's coming out on iTunes, Amazon and uh, Google Play as well as DVD. Um, our DVD should be in JB Hi-Fi. And, yeah, the minute those start earning, we can start divvying up money to everybody. So, yeah, so it's sort of... It's good. We haven't had to max out. We don't, you know, we haven't got any creditors yet. So that's great. Well done. So uh, Paul Anthony Nelson is the co-writer, also the director, photographer and editor of the independent uh, micro-budget Australian neo-noir called Trench. It's a kind of mashup of, as uh, as uh, Paul said earlier, it's a mashup of screwball comedy and film noir. Um, and it's showing... Next Thursday, the 17th of May, 7pm at the Lido Cinemas, 675 Glen Ferry Road. The screening will be followed by a Q&A with, uh, with Paul uh, and also the co-writer Perry and her co-star Samantha Hill. Um, and I think Guy Davis is going to be there as he, the moderator, who's a Geelong-based film critic and writer who also appears in the film. He does indeed. Yeah, he's going to be our, our, uh, our Q&A maestro, so that'll be fun. It'll be a fun night. If you want to book for that, www.lidocinemas.com.au and you can find out more about the team and their films and plans at cinemaviscera.com. Paul, just before you go, we I, we introed by referencing and talking about film noir. The film is clearly in terms of camera angles and lighting and setup, and and takes so much inspiration from noir what is it about noir as as a style uh, as a, a an assemblage of motifs that has held so much influence over cinema history generally and for you personally yeah i i, I think it, it, it anyone with a dark heart kind of loves it i think uh, it's um it looks gorgeous it's like another dimension it's like you step into another world where things everything is just so ineffably cool um but there's also a kind of a sense that something at the core of the world is rotten and needs to be stamped out like that sort of thing is really kind of perversely appealing as well i think but and you know there's there's something kind of romantic about the you know whether male or female the 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 lone wolf kind of detective figure um kind of um going through my favorite my favorite noirs are stanley kubrick's the killing superb film which is like a rogues gallery of faces in this wonderful kind of dark story um uh, uh, penned by Jim Thompson. And the other one is uh, Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye, 
which is not the dark noir, but more a light, kind of a lighter LA noir. But yeah, I just, I, I, I find those really, um, find the style just really, really appealing. And I think that it's always held that fascination for filmmakers over time because you get to play with those canted angles and that expressionistic lighting. It's kind of American expressionism, really. It is, very much so. Um, and it's the whole kind of down these mean streets, a man must go who himself is not mean, but kind of the the, the, uh, the shabby uh, detective with a, not necessarily a heart of gold, but who means well and is striving to do good in a world that is determined to go bad. Uh, it's a genre I love. So go and see, as we said, uh, the film is called Trench on at the Lido Cinemas in Glenferry Road, Hawthorne, next Thursday, the 17th of May at 7pm. You can book at lidocinemas.com.au and hang around for the Q&A afterwards with the filmmaking team, uh, hosted by critic, writer and one of the uh, stars of the film, Guy Davis. Paul, thanks for coming in. Thank you so much, Rich. After Dark Theatre Artistic Director Frank Miniti joins me in the studio. He's also performing in the show Society, together with uh, fellow performer Simon Story. Welcome to you both. Oh, thank you for having us on board, Richard. Good morning, Richard. So uh, tell us a little bit about Society, which is, uh, according to the blurb, what inspired by Bourbon Street and the French Quarter in New Orleans. But beyond that, beyond the inspiration, I suddenly feel like I should be, I don't know, playing kind of decadent jazz or something like that. <laughs> you should. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> tell us about the show. Uh, so, yeah, the show is heavily inspired by uh, just the New Orleans culture uh, surrounding Mardi Gras. Uh, and I did a f fascinating bit of research where I found out that there were secret societies that originally pieced together what was called the Fat Tuesday Parades, uh, which later became Mardi Gras. Um, and, uh, yeah, I did some fascinating research on that uh, and found out that they were these societies that wanted to compete for the best parade. Everybody knew that there was a parade in town, but nobody knew who hosted it. So it was just this most amazing kind of bizarre thing. And, yeah, we decided to build a show uh, based on that, um, which, yeah, has turned out to be quite an interesting little production. So taking kind of that idea of the, the decadent revelry of New Orleans and, and uh, transposing it into circus, how does that work from a... From from a performer's perspective? Well, uh, I used to be a classical ballet dancer, fell in love with circus years and years ago. I trained at the Royal Ballet School in London and then was lucky enough to get involved in circus. And circus art is very unique in that you can be any size, any shape, any culture, any colour and develop your own unique set of skills and art form. Um, working with Frank on society at the Melba... Uh, has been pretty special for me, mainly the music. I'm, I really love Delta Blues and all the dark jazz and New Orleans feel. So for me, it's an absolute pleasure. I'm, an, I'm lucky enough to do usually an art form called Adagio, which is usually a male dancing with sexy women. So I'm a lucky man doing <laughs> Delta Blues stuff and doing sexy things with sexy girls. So... I'm kind of kicking myself. I've got a, an album of uh, like a New Orleans jazz funeral CD at oh, home, which yes. I totally should have bought in. But so, um, talk to us about circus as an art form beyond just the 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 thing that fascinates me about it is that, yet apart from companies like Cirque du Soleil, which kind of almost have a circus factory that churns out kind of artists and shows, mm. the the thing that fascinates fascinates me, Simon, is what you've already touched on that so much circus work is made on the body. It's owned by the performers. It's there. There are own art, their own expression and their own routine. So it's a, a deeply intimate kind of, uh, kind of art form. It, it, it usually is an extremely physical art form, obviously, and it's, it's, it's performance art um, that can take 10, 15 years to train one act um, or one unique set of skills. So it's pretty brutal on the body, but um, you don't have to have a specific body type. You can be tiny, you can be huge, you can be anything, which I, I think is quite remarkable. Yeah, absolutely. When it comes to putting a show together, talk yeah. to us about that challenge. When you've, Because the risk is, of course, and I've discussed this with, with other circus artists in the past, that you end up just with a series of bits rather yes. than a cohesive show. Yeah, so when, when I started putting together uh, Society, the first thing that I did was uh, piece together um, uh, acts that would resemble or that could in a constructive way, tell a mini story or a short scene um, of 
the individual parts of New Orleans that I really fell in love with when I went there back in 2010. So, uh, you know, we've got these moments where it's like a dark nightclub seedy scene. That's where you can kind of put a nice, sexy adagio number in there. Uh, when it gets a little bit loose and wild, we have this magic quick change that's a little bit more flamboyant and out there and a little bit crazy. Um, so, yeah, when, when I was piecing it together, I really made sure um, that I could complement the story with the act as opposed to getting the acts and then going, okay, we're going to make a show let's just glue it together with putting act abc in the order so that that person can rest it's actually a constant challenge for creative directors in circus because typically in circus yes you do have you know 20 30 or 40 different unique skills like someone on a unicycle someone on a high wire someone doing flying trapeze someone doing handstands etc um, and those everyone expects to see Acts. They expect to see some clever, strong man or strong woman or flexible person doing clever things that no one else can do in the world. But then if you're passionate about theatre and drama and telling stories and you want more than just watching gymnastics, the challenge for an artistic director is to actually create something that has life in it and touches the soul and is you know, can make people laugh and cry, etc. Yeah, exactly. And that's and that's the thing, um, that when you are the the artistic director piecing together a show, you really have to fine tune and go, how can all of this work together? And how can we kind of piece together the right people to tell the right story? Uh, if I was to do another production or a previous production, I wouldn't have used the same cast because that same cast wouldn't have complemented the story or the narrative that I was trying to piece together. And that's something with Circus in particular that it's great. At the moment, we're starting to evolve to wanting to tell a full narrative or a full story rather than just going, this is the theme of a show. Hey, we're going to have a party. Yeah, It reinforces that what we think of as con contemporary circus is still a very new art form compared yeah. to yeah, the, the, the conventions of opera and theatre and so on circuses in this form has really only been around since the 70s or so and is still very much evolving and as you say that that notion of bringing narrative to it which is something that I know Emma Sargent from Brisbane yes. has, has been kind of exploring over several years or bringing the, the, the passion of choreography and the way that choreography in dance can convey yeah. and distill emotion so you're on lift ships up at Circa also in Brisbane yep. has been very much exploring that aspect of circus as well so it's still very much a malleable and fluid art form I, yeah, exactly. I, I find it fascinating having trained as in the high art of classical ballet very pure it's like a greenhouse they're like seedlings in a greenhouse growing in these ballet schools around the world like at the Paris Opera or the Royal Ballet um, and then finding myself in circus art, I find it fascinating now observing on YouTube increasingly, probably it is, you know, the internet and media, that's you're getting this fusion of art forms, you know, classical ballet dancers working with circus artists and all kinds of arts crossing over and blending and mixing, opera singers doing musical theatre. And that's a thing in this show that we've gone and done. We've grabbed uh, people that are professional ballroom couples and we've brought them in and we've given them a little bit of circus to work with as well. So it's not just been a, a, you know, a extraordinary kind of circus feat show. Um, it's got a bit of everything in it, which is really nice. And we've even blended in other art forms like magic, which people tend to put in the same c category as circus, but... I like to think that it's a little bit opposite. You know, it's it's definitely got a bit of showmany to it, but there's things that you can do in magic that you can't really achieve with circus. And yes, I can see Simon smiling at me. The the magic. No, I'm just thinking act. of all the magicians <laughs> I know, and they're loved and hated <laughs> at the same at the same time. But it's appropriate that. Uh that society, the show we're talking about, is in the Melbourne Spiegel tent because the Melbourne Magic Festival then moves into the Melbourne Spiegel That's tent correct. in a few weeks' time. So uh, something else I'll probably be talking about in the show in a couple of weeks, I have no doubt. Simon, I'm really intrigued about this movement of yours in your career from classical ballet into mm -hmm. circus. Tell us, how did that actually happen? Well, I graduated from the Royal Ballet many, many years ago and uh, funnily enough, I knew a fascinating uh, woman who was 75 at the time and she'd been an old vaudeville artist, P.D. Peterson. Um, I think her performing arts name was Mimi. Uh, I can't remember. She was in a big ensemble act where she was the star flyer 
this little bendy, beautiful woman from way back in the day, like in the 1930s, she was a star, 1940s, doing vaudeville uh, with three strong men who used to throw her around and toss her around like a rag doll. And I saw, I saw old film footage of her doing this stuff and I fell in love with it. And then I met an old English legend who, who's since passed away, sadly, uh, a little tiny acrobat called Johnny Hutch, who'd run away to the circus when he was 14 years old, barefooted in the De Great Depression. And he'd, he'd gone to Morocco and learnt to be an Arab tumbler. And he was an incredible legend. He actually influenced people in Australia as well. I've, I've come across many acrobats here who had been taught by people through him and uh yeah so i fell in and fell in love with acrobatics and and circus because of those characters that i met from vaudeville how important is it to in a show like society to honor those influences and celebrate those influences without being too tied down by them yeah it, with the, the risk of being cliche with certain acts is <laughs> it's so close to everything isn't it? um yeah look the the trick is kind of to kind of really, um, you know, see what the, the skills are and the traditional skill sets are and just seeing how you can kind of recreate complement but without copying. It's I guess, it, yeah, you don't want to duplicate the same thing that has been done from a long time ago. What you really want to do is kind of just go, all right, we'll use this little bit of this act. Let's blend it with argument's sake. Yeah. And you use all the other stagecraft techniques like set lighting and, and things like that to really move it away from what it is. And you go, all right, we've got this this uh, adagio number. Let's make it more explosive this time or let's make it more dance orientated and things like that. So it's quite a, yeah, it's kind of a tough juggling act to do. But yeah, over time you, you plan it all out and the trick also, I guess, is to really piece it out over the entire production to make sure that that's not happening, that you're not uh, digging into too many cliche moments in the show. Historically, um, circus acts uh, and skills were passed down. Knowledge was passed down, usually in families mm -hmm. or certainly in tents. You know, there would be the that family tent would have its own mob and they would have their unique skills and their strengths and they would teach them to the young ones coming in and coming up through the families. And often those were guarded or it was quite, you know, there would be one family that would be owners of acts. Of course, with uh, the development of technology in the world and the way Cirque du Soleil has, you know, spread the love of circus around the world. Mm. We now have circus schools in so many cities all over the Western world that you can go and do degree courses in. Mm. So the, the ownership and the possession of acts and knowledge is kind of dissipating and being spread out through universities. And, yeah, and you still yeah. have a lot of families that still guard their secrets. Even today, there's a, a couple of circus families that have got these kind of newer contemporary acts, things like the Globe of Death, where it's motorcycles in a giant dome. Uh, and you'll notice that it spreads in a certain country, like a skill set like that will spread in one country more than other countries, because that's come from that family, that family has seen the other family do their things. They're like, oh, that's great. The audience really like that. So they create their own version of, or a member of that family marries into another family, because it is quite a close community the circus community so that's also how the kind of the secrets of the circus kind of slowly start getting spread out and then here in australia then add into the mix the 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 fact that there's a whole uh generation or more now of circus artists who were taught by chinese acrobats uh, yes. yes from the nanjing project yeah. way back when yeah, yeah. so and the, I, those kind of lineages and and then it's like a family tree if you tried to it'd be a, a, a fun process mapping it going okay uh who started training there and they've ended up there and now they're training these people yeah. and watching also how the art form evolves as well yeah. as different generations take it over. We could talk about this for hours, but we should probably wrap up. Uh, the show is called Society. Before we finish, though, um, I'll give the dates and details. It is on at the Melbourne Spiegel Tent on the 10th to the 26th of May. I'll give booking details in a moment. But, Frank, you said, what, it was 2010 you went to New Orleans and was yeah. kind of inspired by it. What is it about that particular city that... Oh. that 
made you kind of fall in love with its culture so much that you wanted to build this show society to to pay homage to it? The, the resilience of the people, the laid-back nature of um, of New Orleans, um, how everybody took everything with a you know, grain of salt. They're just like, yeah, whatever, you know, it's not too bad. Let the good times roll. Let's party. Let's have a good time. And I just loved that that positive attitude. Even in, I went to a couple of different places like the Seventh Ward and the Ninth Ward, which are really far out and really kind of uh, areas that were still, even at that time, were still greatly affected by Katrina. And they were still having second line parades in the streets, still partying and still trying to keep that positive energy going. And when I saw that as a show, as a, as a as an experience, sorry, I wanted to really make a production that paid homage to those areas as well as the French Quarter itself. Uh, and just, you know... Strong human spirit. It's strong human spirit. They're just, they're just loose and they know how to have a great time. You know, that's the, <laughs> that's the amazing thing about it. And I thought, what better thing than to bring it all in a tent and have a big parade inside a tent. So, yeah. Uh, the idea of getting loose and having a great time definitely works for me. <laughs> uh, society at the Melbourne Spiegel tent, which is at 35 Johnson Street, Collingwood, just next door to the tote if you've not been there before, is on from the 10th to the 26th of May, Thursday at 7.30pm, Friday and Saturday 7.30pm and 9.30pm except for Saturday the 12th of May. Um, and the 10th, which is tonight, is preview night, which means cheaper tickets. Cheaper tickets for everyone. And uh, the gala night is on Saturday night, the 12th. Yes, that's correct. Uh, yeah. Preview, there's still a few tickets tickets left tonight so if you do get a chance come down and check it out the gala is unfortunately sold out i'm not surprised but uh, <laughs> yeah if you want a book jump online www.afterdarktheatre.com is the place to go to book to see society at the melba spiegel tent in collingwood frank and simon thank you so much for joining thank you us so much for having us on board thank you richard Melbourne playwright Angus Serini is uh, in to chat about his award-winning play, uh, The Bleeding Tree, which was originally staged up in Sydney by Griffin Theatre Company and has taken too bloody long to get to Melbourne. It's it's taken a while. It's taken a while, but um, it's good to be here. It's nice to have you here. You know what? It's lovely to see you this morning, Richard. <laughs> Always a pleasure to see your smiling <laughs> face, Mr. Serini. So, this is a play that kind of what ori uh, originally won uh, kind of like the the Griffin Playwriting Award, yep. and so as a result of that, got workshop, got staged, directed by Lee Lewis, who's the artistic yes. director of Griffin Theatre Company, yep. and that was what 2015 that it premiered. Yes, yeah, I yeah. think so. Yeah, yeah. So it it won the prize, and they developed it, but it was also being developed with Playwriting Australia. And it was, it was through Sydney Uni, so there was a bit of a partnership there. Creative Victoria chipped in a little bit of money to a thing. So it had a lot of support. The play went on, it did well. And then last year it did a remount at Sydney Theatre Company. And that season sold out. It, it did. Um, and that was sort of a big thrill. And now it's doing a little tour. It's doing Canberra, Melbourne and Geelong. Fantastic. So... Yeah, it is. I'm, I'm, so I'm thrilled because it, it doesn't happen often. It, it, it's one of the things that I've spoken to a few playwrights about that it's very... You spend all this time and, and yep. work writing a play and it gets yep. on and it gets seen once so in, a, right. in a two-week season or three-week yep. season and so few plays are then remounted or toured or seen again. It, it's true and it's sort of, you know, I've, I've made the, the um, comparison before, you know, it's Coca-Cola, develop a new drink. You know, spend all this money on developing it. They put it in a few shops for three months and then they just take it off the shelves. And it's sort of, you're never going to make that investment back with that kind of, um, you know, lack of, lack of, you know, like put your money where your mouth is. And so all the money really in making a bit of art or making a show particularly, it's in the development. And so it, it was all those developments, all the redrafts, all the rewriting. And so it is thrilling. And it, it's not just, just um, the play itself, but it's all the artists involved with the, the show, um, they all get a gig. We keep getting a gig from it, um, you know, and that's, that's fantastic. So, yeah. Let's talk about this show in particular, The Bleeding Tree. You say in your uh, notes for the show, uh, uh, it has been enormously enjoyable writing The Bleeding Tree to revel in the downfall of someone who preys on others and to envisage a community joining in on that <laughs> destruction. So, uh, did I write that? You did, uh, yeah, well, according okay. to this. Uh -huh. um, it does have your name at the bottom. And oh, it well, says, play it must, note. It must be right. It must be true. So that notion of reveling in the downfall of someone who's a predator, that, yep. I mean, that's more time than ever now. Wow, we love it. I mean, I mean you know, that's the thing. It's sort of the world's full of uh, horror, tra trauma, terror. What can we do? 
And when the bad guy gets it, I think we all get a little vicarious thrill. Yeah, so, so the play opens and they've just killed the guy. So we, it's sort of, we open and they're thinking, all right, we've killed a guy, what the hell are we going to do? And that's what the play sets out to sort of get them off the hook, essentially. So, I mean, literally the opening line, with a bullet hole through your neck, numbskull of yours never looked so fine. So we have <laughs> a, a, an abusive... Kind of, uh Domestic situation. Yep. Uh, mother, two daughters. Yep. The play literally opens. They have killed... Yeah, kind just of, then. It's like the, the, it's like the curtain opens and the gunshot was just before the curtain opens. And, you know, and, I, and it's sort of interesting because I think the play, it's less about that violent act. It's less about that violent man. I think it's more about the community and how they come to help those women. And it also, the play talks to that community and says... This was happening and you did nothing. Yeah. You had all these chances. You knew he was a bad guy and you did nothing. It's and only and now that he's dead that suddenly the yeah. community is involved. Yeah, and it's sort of there's a I think it's interesting because you go, well, they've killed a guy, that's bad. You don't kill people. And then you go, but hang on a minute, what choice did they have? You know, it was self defense, really, essentially. And so, yeah, do they get away with it? People will have to come to the theatre to see. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. They do get away with it, just <laughs> just quietly. <laughs> In terms of writing the, the, the play itself, I've seen you performing your own work yep. uh, often and yep. kind of so there's always a, a kind of intense physicality to your work and this kind of um, kind of brutal poetry to your text. What was it like writing a play like this, knowing that other people would be performing it rather than you yourself? It, it's, it's, it's scary and liberating and fantastic and horrible. It's, it's everything, but it, it's sort of that, that interest. It's that great... Well, I'm not a woman. It was, it's a play for three women. And, um, and it's sort of... Look, it's, 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 great, it's great writing a play when others do it because when they do it well and they do it to the extent that you never might have imagined how well they might do it, when the words come out of their mouth that you've written and those words you sit there and go, wow, I wrote that, they're doing that really well, it's, it's thrilling um, and there's a lot of work in writing a play, but when you hand it over, you sort of kick back and come along terrified to opening night. It's, in, it's, it's incredibly gratifying. Um, um, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm sort of a bit... It's, it's thrilling. It really is. Yeah. It really is. One of the things that's intriguing about the play, and you can, people can uh, buy a, a copy of the script through Currency Press, which yeah. I did because I... Did you was, buy it? Yeah. I'll buy you a I'll buy you a coffee or something. Thanks, <laughs> thanks for that. That's good. That's okay. I think I get twenty five cents or something oh, for great. a book. Cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. But one of the things that intrigued me reading it was the fact that uh, unlike uh, a more traditional play script with stage directions yeah. or uh, and saying character's name, character A says this, character B says this, character C says that, you don't assign no. uh, the, the the words to specific members of the family, to no. specific individuals. It's just, it's text and it, then the director has the creative choice of yeah. deciding, okay, who says that and why. Why did you write it in this way? Look, I wrote it in a sort of, in a, in a burst. It was about two hours over the first draft. It just sort of came out. And it was just a stream of consciousness, really. And so in rehearsal, it was about there are three characters, three actors, we need to break that up. And a lot of the script and the lines in the play, they're sort of indiscriminately divided. And it's essentially, it could be one actor. And re really, it's, there's no character names assigned. Uh, in, in, in rehearsal, there, are, there is a script with lines allocated. But it, it was really just a, a quick, fast and furious blurt out and then the next year and a half, two years of 20 drafts on sort of creating a bit more clarity for the director and actors. Um, but essentially you could, it was sort of really indiscriminate who says what and what and, and that was a bit weird because the three actors play other characters as well. And so I was like, all right, so if she's just said that, she can't be the guy she's talking to. But the character who's talking to that guy is... That is her. So you can't have a you can't have one actor saying having a chat to themselves essentially. So that was it was a lot of work. It was sort of annoying, really. It was like admin. It was like creative admin. All right. Yeah. So, um, but it works well, and um, it's it's sort of it's a tough ask for the actors to 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 jump between those things and jump between, you know, a, a cop that's come to say what are you doing, and the mother saying, well, screw you. You knew he was hitting us. So what are you going to do, you know? Um, and, but that's, that's, that's sort of... I think that's part of the joy for an audience too, watching these three actors really working. 
Um, and so that's that it's, it's it works well. Yeah. It's been described as a murder ballad. It's been described as kind of gothic or Australian yeah. gothic. How conscious of you? Uh, how conscious were you of those kind of influences? That history of the murder ballad or of the, the the gothic tropes and so and the haunted Australian landscape when you were writing it? Or was it, as you say, was it just this kind of uh, yeah. stream of consciousness blur, which has since been shaped afterwards? Well, that's interesting because I d- well I did write it in a blur and it was just three characters and they were in this drama and so that's what happened. But but what do I, I do? I listen to Johnny Cash, you know that that sort of Tom Waits. That you know, there's a great song. I think Sting wrote it. It and Johnny Cash sings it. I hang my head and it's it's a great sort of ballad and it, it, it's a you know i hang my head it's this sort of he's shot this dude and it's all sort of a mistake um i guess that's and i've got a block of land out in the bush so it, you're sort of surrounded by these these influences and nick cave um i mean a big day out must have been 1993 nick cave the ship song little slanting light rain there he is on one knee and it was just these sort of it's sort of i don't know how that that plays into it but i think they're my influences that i I love I love that sort of dark macabre, and the thing I love about sort of Johnny Cash and Nick Cave, they might go to um, this sort of really dark, grisly human material, but it's very much a song or a piece of music that we're enjoying, and I think that's where the Bleeding Tree really succeeds, like nothing else I've ever made does, in that it's it's a good story, like it's a story, it sits there and you get what's going on, but they're, they're talking sort of poetic. Poem. They're talking. A, they're sort of. It's a sort of spoken word. Sort of weird. It's not like they're. Hi, it's, mum. How are you? Would you like a cup of tea? It's not that at all. It's. It's, yeah. it's very sort of weird. It's sort of abstract. And I think that protects us also from the horrific kind of the violence and the the reality of what the material is. It's pretty. It's pretty art. Yeah. You it, know. There's a, a fractured poetry to it. Which, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Much like sort of that Johnny Cash song, "I Hang My Head." He's talking about killing someone and being on the run, and then he gets. He gets caught and he gets hung. It's it, it that's pretty that's a pretty shocking story, but the song's great. So we we're enjoying the song, and and that's kind of how I like. I like to compare myself to Johnny Cash and Tom Waits and Nick Cave. It's what I like to do in life because shit. If you get to aspire to be some people, well, may as well be those guys. Look, I interviewed David Williamson once, and he compared himself to Shakespeare. So well, uh, come on, he is. Come on, is he, he was the Australian Shakespeare of uh, 1970-something, wasn't he? Um, he was talking uh, much more recently than that. Was he? Um, okay, now, okay. Yeah. I'm not going there. <laughs> we might just have... I think you can read my subtext. Um, uh, one of the, the play, as I said, is directed by Lee Lewis, who's yes. the artistic director of, of Griffin Theatre. This was pretty much your introduction to the Sydney theatre world. Yeah. Audiences in Melbourne knew you and loved your work. Yep. Um, were you... Anxious at all about kind of Terrified. going to a different city where they didn't know you, didn't know the history and the evolution of your work. Well, I was, but it, you know, having a theatre company do it and me not being in the show, I'd done other shows in Sydney. I've done bits and pieces, but this being removed, being at once removed, just being the writer, it's sort of you can just be quietly hidden, and really there. It's a very Griffin's a great theatre company. They do Australian work. Usually, most of it's brand new. Um, there's no other theatre company in Australia, professional sort of main stage company that does that sort of, has that sort of focus. Playbox years and years ago used to do it. Um, and so in that sense, um, I think audiences for Griffin, the Griffin audiences are incredibly loyal. Um, it's a small theatre, but they will go. And, you know, new Australian plays get audiences and there should be more of it and there should be more touring and sharing of those works. Um I was terrified, but I was probably more terrified because um, I'd I, look. I've got some weird experiences of doing shows in Sydney, and, and like the, my first ever gig in Sydney. I'm not going to tell you about it, but I'm sort of cringing just thinking <laughs> about it. Um, Susie D might be able to. And, and, and so this is thank God this went well. Is how I felt. We're talking to playwright Angus Serini, whose play The Bleeding Tree is having its uh, long uh, overdue and much-anticipated Melbourne season at Art Centre Melbourne. It's running from the 15th to the 19th of May, and you can get tickets through artcentremelbourne.com.au. Angus, we've talked a lot about the darkness of the play, but one of the things that Lee Lewis says in her director's notes is, this is a hopeful play. There is a hope that it was written, that it can be performed by women in a public space, that it can be directed by a woman, that it can be published, bought, sold, read and seen without fear here in the Australian 21st century. But 
she also notes that at the time it was being directed, women were, were dying, women were being killed in their homes by their partners. So there is hope in the play, but it is uh, a hope tinged with sadness, knowing what still occurs in this country and still happens to women every day. It's full on, isn't it? Um, the, the first play I ever wrote was a little play called Recidivist. That was 1996 and it was about a boy and it was in three parts. And the first part, the monologue was when I was 12... He hit, we hid behind the couch. When I was 15, he hit me, so I hit him back. So, and when I was 21, it was this sort of... So I've been writing about these sort of violent men all these years and it's weird that, that, that the Royal Commission into Family Violence... It's sort of... This shit happens. Um, not sure we can do much about it apart from being more willing to... Except to, to talk about it and expose it and stare it in the face. And I think the incidence, that growing incidence that's reported, says something about our laws and our society that says, hang on, this isn't hidden. Tell us, we're going to help you. We're going to do what we can. And um, it is happening. And the, sort of the statistics, I mean, all statistics are kind of, you know, they're all lies in a sense. They're not like, what do you believe? But it's it's a huge incidence. Um, but we as a society and a community, it's 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 not everyone it is tiny in this like it's huge it's it's a big thing but it is tiny in the scheme of things so we as a society are actually a lot stronger than it and this play i think says um we want to help we will help and we will kill the guys that hit women uh something like oh god that's out of i don't know it's it's but it is deliciously it's delicious because the guy's copped it and that's good, isn't it? It's like if you let yourself just think for a minute, that's just, yeah, he cops it. He's gone and now we're going to... And so I think maybe that, that I mean, all we can do sometimes is, is um, be grateful that the scumbag gets it. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> Angu- so, uh, it's all good. Yeah, okay, Ang- good. Angus Serrini's The Bleeding <coughs> Three is on at Art Centre Melbourne. Uh, it's a Griffin Theatre Company uh, production. Uh, it is on from the 15th to the 19th of May, so a relatively short season. So do not miss your chance to see it. Tickets on sale from artcentremelbourne.com.au. Angus, thank you for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. What's happened is that uh, the Chinese Museum, the Coasit Italian Historical Society and Museo Italiano, the Hellenic Museum, the Islamic Museum of Australia, and the Jewish Museum of Australia have all come together uh, to uh, with a project, uh, the Multicultural Museums Victoria Initiative, and a joint project that they're presenting called Grandmothers, celebrating grandmothers across many different cultures and societies. Joining us to tell us more, we have the CEO of the Hellenic Museum, John Tatsoulis. John, welcome to Triple R. Thank you. Uh, And also joining us is Renata Singer, a community activist and writer. Welcome to you as well. Thank you. So, John, let's start with you. Um, What was the the, the, the kind of impetus or the the drive for all these different museums to come together to form this Multicultural Museums Victoria Initiative? Well... Um, we we all truly believe that um, uh, that uh, one of the great assets of the city is um, the fact that we are such a multicultural city, um, and uh, and there are five uh, really strong uh, multicultural museums. As you mentioned, the Jewish Museum, the, Is- uh, the Islamic Museum, the Chinese Museum, uh, Hellenic Museum, um, the Italian Museum, uh, and we uh, came together about four, uh, two or three years ago. Um, uh, initial discussions to sort of see how we could maybe form a sector, because as a sector, uh, you're more effective, and um, and you can do things like um, joint pro or you can benchmark against each other um, and uh, you can have um, a whole range of initiatives that um, uh, go across all five uh, museums uh, and, you know, and you're actually stronger you know, as a sector than you are as individual museums. So that was the initial you know, um, uh, discussions that we had and it grew just sort of over that time uh, to the point where we felt, well, actually, let's formalise this um, this sector, let's, um, let's create um, uh, a, uh, um, a, 
um, an entity uh, that we decided to call Multicultural Museums Victoria. Um, and uh, and to launch that entity, uh, we thought it would be appropriate if we had um, a an exhibition that we all approached differently, um, but, you know, had a single theme. And um, it was the Jewish Museum's uh, director, um, uh, Rebecca uh, Fogas, uh, who um, suggested the theme of uh, grandmothers. It was something that they were researching and, and we immediately, all the other directors, sort of said, of course, it's the obvious, you know, um, uh, you know, the obvious uh, choice for a, uh, for a cross-cultural uh, exhibition. I do love the, this idea of celebrating something shared across cultures, across the, the kind of divisions that form uh, in our society and that mm-hmm. are increasingly... Yeah kind of more exaggerated in our society. Um, I'm going to assume, Renata, that you yourself are a grandmother. I think although that kind of introduction you gave me was completely irrelevant because the only reason that I'm actually here is because I'm a grandmother. (laughs) I'm fortunately a grandmother of four. Um, uh, When I was asked to take part in the Jewish Museum's exhibition, um, I thought it really appealed to me because I thought to myself... I know nothing about my grandmothers. They were both uh, killed, murdered by Hitler in Treblinka. I don't even have a photograph of them. And um, when I thought about myself and my husband and my mother and father, I thought, you know, they, they knew more about the man, the f- grandfather, even though I didn't know my grandfathers either. I know more about them because they had public, slightly more public lives. And it really gave me the... I thought, well, I'd like my grandchildren to know something more about me, so... I I'm going to take part in this exhibition and I really had a great time I must say because I started to think the questions of the interviewer who came to talk to me made me think about what it is to be a grandmother so you know you just usually you know how you are you are a mother you are a grandmother you just do these things and there's other whole life you reflect about which is completely different to that and it made me think about what I wanted to be like as a grandmother and I asked my daughters about what they thought about their because they both did have grandmothers although far, for far too short a time and one of my daughters said um, well one of my grandmothers you know I knew when I went to her place she would have lollies hidden for me she would um, you know always ask me what I wanted and the other grandmother I just thought about her as somebody whose expectations were difficult to fulfill so I thought Right, 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 right. I have to think about this here. And um, I realised that I would like to be more like the first grandmother, but I'm much more like the second grandmother. So it's been a really uh, interesting exhibition to be in. Um, it's The Jewish Museum one is visually absolutely stunning because the photographer is has got these textiles behind us when she takes our photographs and we look... Um, you have to see it. I mean, because it's an exhibition, you have to go and see the exhibitions, really. That process of reflection uh, that Renata has just described, John, is that shared and common across all the exhibitions as well? Do you think that participants and, I would imagine, the museum staff involved in each of the exhibitions have also gone through that process of reflection about themselves, their relationships, their family relationships and so forth? Oh, absolutely. Um, and the thing we found you know, um, across the you know, museums, across the different exhibitions, was that uh, the themes are common. So it's not like you know, the, you know, the the themes that were touched on by the Jewish Museum grandmothers all um, were different to those that, that were reflected within um, uh, the voices of the uh, Greek um, uh, grandmothers or the Chinese grandmothers or the you know, or the Italian grandmothers you know, or you know, um, grandmothers from the different you know, sort of uh, Islamic countries. Yeah, you know. um, it, um, it there was a commonality you know, which was you know, really you know, sort of you know, quite exciting. I mean, one of the things that you know, um, uh, really came through. Um, from uh, the, uh, the the group of uh, Greek grandmothers, yeah, was um, the, uh, the, uh, the 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 fact that um, uh, love was unconditional, but um, but there was um, uh, an, an opportunity to step back because you know the true responsibility still remained with the parents. Yeah, so. Um, uh, that that was common. The other thing uh, that was relatively common was um, the, the power of education and the need for storytelling and uh, and the continuation of yeah, of um, uh, and, and uh, sort of a, a cultural narrative and, and that being you know, sort of you know passed on um, and, and also. Um, 
uh, I, you know, I guess you know, um, it didn't matter uh, where uh, each of the grandmothers had come from in terms of their, you know, their, um, their geographical circumstances or their, their financial circumstances. The, uh, um, the, the actual um, role that they felt uh, was important um, was uh, the same across each of the grandmothers that, uh, that, that are in our exhibition. Now, the exhibition at the Hellenic Museum, uh, I'm probably going to mangle the... Uh, my, I, I don't speak Greek. I, so, uh, Yaya? Yaya, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, talk to us, uh, and a question for both of you, the, the, the way that uh, cultures change and women are now much less kind of, for example, um, overshadowed by their husbands, for example, which is something that you kind of uh, referenced, Renata, that notion that mm. men had more public lives in the past, whereas the the woman's life was kind of was less visible, less seen. It was in the home. Kind of, do the exhibitions, to what degree do they show how, while the 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 job of being a grandmother has perhaps not changed? Uh, the the culture around us has changed, and women's lives have changed. How 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 is that reflected? Um, I think the the ten grandmothers in the Jewish Museum exhibition, and I haven't as yet had the opportunity to see the others, but I've got a Sunday set aside to go around to all of them. Um, are really very very different in their experiences because one of the things about Jewish people is we come from everywhere in the world so we're not like Greeks who come from Greece or Italians who come from Italy or whatever we come so our grandmother names reflect that for example I'm a Buba which is the Yiddish grandmother then there's a Sapta she's a Hebrew grandmother then there's a Meme she's a Sephardic grandmother then there are Omars for the people who came from Vienna then there are Nanas and and you know there are the whole so so we, we're actually like a whole multicultural museum all on our own in a funny way because we've come from everywhere in the world. The same, China. As, the same as the Islamic Museum. Yeah. You know, their, you know, their grandmothers come from a whole range of yeah. different... You know, and including Greece and Greece. We come from Greece, we come from China, we come from everywhere. So um, they're very... The grandmothers are very varied and they've tried to really have that whole display of the variation. We're also very different in our belief systems from, you know, very observant to completely non-observant Jews. So we've got that other whole range as well in the museum and in that range you get the diff not a so it makes that grandmother's role different in the values that she brings down to her children the heritage within the jewish culture it, the grandmothers are bringing quite different although sim connected heritages so we've already got the thing where we've got this thing connecting us although we're very different and then we're connected to the other grandmothers who are not jewish as well so on the question you going back to the question <laughs> you asked me, sorry, um, it, the gra the grandmothers are hugely different in their work life back educational backgrounds. Um, I mean, I'm a really part-time grandmother, I have to admit. Um, I, I really try and make time to see my grandchildren, but it's not the focus of my life. And I'm 72 and it's not the focus of my life. I'm the president of a Jewish cultural organisation. I'm involved in a Jewish writers' festival. Um, you know, I have a whole lot of lives that are not connected to being a grandmother still going. And a lot of the women um, in the exhibition are like me. You know, Carol Schwartz is a businesswoman still and runs a big business. Um, others are still very much involved in either paid or unpaid work. And then there are others who are not involved in paid or unpaid work anymore. So I think um, because we live longer, the whole role... The whole it's not about it is about feminism to some extent and the change that has come about through feminism and our role not just in the family but in the world but it's also about longevity you know um, for example my mother died when she was 60 so she was a grandmother for a very brief period of time I've already had another 12 years Although my children didn't start early enough, but we won't go into that one. We won't. Now go you sound like a grandmother. <laughs> now I sound like a grandmother. I am a grandmother. I know. I know. So I think it's also longevity is made. So that there are many changes in the world that have changed the role of the grandmother. Mm -hmm. Picking up on Renata's point, um, look, within our exhibition, uh, it was also about breaking down stereotypes. Um, uh, you look at the um, uh, the typical. Australian Greek grandmother. She's not 
um, black clad and you know, um, and um, uh, she's an incredibly you know, erudite, intelligent, you know, um, uh, educated you know, woman uh, in her 60s or 70s or 80s you know, um, who um, whose uh, life experience is, is that of you know, an Australian woman you know, um, of Greek background. And... Um, uh, and you know, so that that has been quite interesting. Where you know, the, the, just the word yeah, 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 um, sort of conjures up you know, sort of the, something sweet and innocent and nice and you know, and wholesome and and maybe black clad. You know, uh, whereas that's not at all you know, um, uh, uh, the uh, the way in which uh, sort of uh, our you know, uh, well, that's not at all the way um, uh, of uh, the women that we um, uh, have in our exhibition. And the inspiration for our exhibition was um, we were talking. I was talking to Renata about this. Before um, central you know, um, within the exhibition, there's a there's an object. It's a it's it's a it's a Corinthian helmet, you know, an ancient Corinthian helmet, three thousand years old. Yeah, um, but the Corinthian helmet was the the symbol of the goddess Athena, you know, um, goddess of uh, of wisdom and the goddess of uh, of war as well. Yeah, um, but but we were reflecting on the fact that you know through history, you know sort of historically, you look at the you know, um, at Greek history and what's glorified are the deeds of men. You know, um, the heroes, the you know the you know the warriors, you know the philosophers, the you know. But the reality is that you know the backbone of you know, Greek society has always been the woman, the mother, the grandmother. You know, and you know, and we just wanted to you know sort of juxtapose that you know that concept of the historical uh, representation of you know of um, of you know of, of, of you know, great Greek people, you know, um, um, but the reality is that, you know, probably the grandmothers and the mothers were stronger. Could I just uh, say, so, so I was in Crete about a year or two ago and there were all these women in black clothes sitting on little stools on the cobblestone streets and I thought, those women are younger than me. Mm. And it was really shocking to me and I thought, that's not really such a bad life. <laughs> <laughs> sitting, you know, because they were obviously, you know, enjoying themselves but they were still wearing the black clothes yeah. and they had these little stools and they were sitting out in the, you know, in the middle of the street, I'm um, enjoying the sunshine. And, I mean, I think I was quite shocked by it. But on the other hand, I thought... Mm. A different experience here in Australia, though. Yeah, yeah, very different. Grandmothers is the inaugural joint project for Multicultural Museums Victoria. It's on now until the 28th of October across the various museums. Jump online, mmv.org.au is the website for Multicultural Museums Victoria. So mmv.org.au forward slash grandmothers. If you want to check out specifically the Jewish Museum of Victoria, that's jewishmuseum.com.au. Uh, and the Hellenic Museum, uh, you can go to hellenic.org. Uh, the details again, grandmothers on now until the 28th of October across the museums which make up uh, Multicultural Museums Victoria. John and Renata, thank you both so much for joining pleasure. us here at Triple R. Absolute pleasure. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.